0: Welcome to Restoration Road Online. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone online. Uh, Is everybody enjoying the beautiful New England weather opposed to last week's beautiful New England weather? I'm glad I live somewhere where we switch 50 degrees every other day. It's very, very great trying to pick out a wardrobe for work. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name's Trevor, and I'm walking backwards into a mic stand. Uh, and I'm a pastoral candidate here at Restoration Road, which means I'm working towards becoming a pastor here um, to be in a vicinity where I can serve you guys. So I'm going to be preaching today because Pastor Joey is, I think, at a conference this weekend, right? Which is really cool and awesome and something he gets to do. Um, and it's great that he gets to go and hang out with our denomination and get to know people and make connections and just partake in all of that. Um, I learned something about myself this past weekend. And that's that I've entered a new era of life where I can hurt myself while sleeping. Um, I don't know where this really came from because as a teenager, I used to sleep half hanging off of a couch most of the time and I was fine every day. Now it's like I lay on my back and I wake up and I can't feel my back. Um, So I think I pulled a muscle in my sleep on Friday, and it's been hurting since. So if you see me stop for a second or spaz out a little bit, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's my back pain. Um, Today we're talking about the ascension of Christ, and what a fitting day to be talking about it, because today is Ascension Sunday. It is 40 days past the resurrection. Um, And honestly, guys, we made it. This is the last sermon in the Luke series. We finished Luke today. We've been in this book for a little over a year now. We've gone through parables. We've wrestled with t- t- tough topics. We've walked through the miracles of our Savior. We have observed his th- birth, death, and resurrection. And now here we are with the last few words and his ascension. Have you ever gotten to the end of a book or a movie you really enjoyed and the realization it was coming to an end hits you and you get kind of sad? Uh, when I was like a teenager, I would stop reading the last two chapters of every book because I was like, I can't do it. I can't commit to this, I can't keep going, Um, and this specifically happened when I was growing up with the Chronicles of Narnia, the third book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is probably my favorite fantasy book of all time. Um, I'm sorry, Lord of the Rings. Uh, The book's fantastic. It has dragons, lions, pirates, sword fights, sea monsters, it's really cool. Read it. Even if you're an adult, you'll really enjoy it, Um, but the book ends in a way that really relates to the reader. The main characters at the beginning are teleported into the middle of Narnia into the adventure with their friends where they learn life lessons and they're challenged, they change, they become better people. And at the end of the book, uh, it really resonates because the voyage comes to a close at the literal end of the world where they see Aslan the lion who's a Christ figure in the book um, for the first time, essentially in the whole book. And he tells them it's time to go. He doesn't, they don't get to stay together, he has to leave. Um, And he says to them right before the characters and you are kicked out of Narnia and the book is over that he is with them always. Um, And I think that C.S. Lewis had Aslan say these words because these are the same words that our Lord says at the end of the book of Matthew. During the Great Commission Christ says, "And Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our Lord leaves on a promise, one that will stay true until he returns. And when we talk about the ascension of Christ, uh, you might have some questions like I had at one point. Why does Christ have to leave? Couldn't he just stay and reign forever? Where is he going now? These questions are extremely valid and have very deep theological reasoning behind them. So today's going to be a little weighty. We're going to get into some cool theological topics. But here's the journey we're going to go on today. Uh, what is the ascension? Where is Christ now? And he is coming back. What is the ascension? I was reading a book by W.A. Criswell, who's the uh, former president of our denomination, and he said that Christ's life is essentially, well, all of Christ, not just his physical life, is essentially eight great epochs, right, which is like eight great epics. Um, It starts with his eternal pre-existence in heaven, his descent to earth, or his virgin birth, his ministry, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his triumphant return, his eternal reign in heaven and on earth. In the Western church, we talk about seven of these eight topics all the time. We have our high holidays set around three of them, and there are at least 10,000 books on the end times and the returning of Christ. I can vouch for that. There's a very large library at the school I work at. You know what I didn't find while I was walking through that library? a single book on the ascension of Christ because for some reason the western church has done itself a great disservice by kind of breezing past the ascension I think this is because we romanticize and envy the other epochs of Christ we think about the Old Testament and we say wouldn't it have been amazing to be able to see a physical manifestation of God's glory on the tabernacle of the temple we look at the disciples and we say, wouldn't it have been amazing to be able to sit at the, seat, uh, at the feet of Christ and learn directly from him? We are currently longing and waiting for the end, of end times and our Lord's return, and what a glorious day that will be, and he comes back. So we get the ascension, and we kind of just, meh, it, it happened, it was there. next book. Um, we built all our holidays around his birth, his death, his resurrection, but the ascension is such a vital piece of Christology. There are so many teachings in the New Testament that when we read them, we go, okay, that that kind of makes sense. But when you understand what happened at the ascension, understand where he went and what he's doing now, they make a lot of sense. They get context to them. Uh, I'm going to read a verse out of Luke 24 50 through 53. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them. He was taken into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This verse says that Jesus blesses the disciples and he's taken to heaven on a cloud. Uh, We're told in Acts 1 that the disciples stood there in a stupor staring at the sky until angels appeared and (laughs) snapped them out of it. And I think, honestly, I would have done the same thing because I would want to see Jesus until I can't see him anymore. I want to see every glimpse of him. There are two extremely important pieces of theology um, in this verse. One is that the ascension is a physical ascension. It is not a metaphor or analogy. Jesus did not ascend in spirit only, but his body was physically taken to heaven. And two, the cloud that Christ is taken to on heaven is not a fluffy white cloud, and it's the glory cloud. The same language used to describe the glory cloud from the Old Testament, which was a cloud of God's presence that would come upon the tabernacle and the temple, is the same language used to describe this cloud that takes Christ to heaven. This is sometimes referred to as the Shekinah glory, um, which isn't a word we find in Scripture, but that's okay because we don't find the word Trinity in Scripture either. This word means, in Hebrew, he chose to dwell. And that's why we use it to describe his glory, because he chose to dwell in glory. Keep these two things in mind, because they're going to be the basis for everything we say today. The ascension itself should not have been a mystery to the disciples, because Jesus told them it was going to happen. In John 3, 13, it says, No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, if you know the Old Testament, this verse gives us a little bit of a contradiction. Because we are told that Enoch and Elijah were both taken to heaven physically. Physically. So is Jesus lying to us? Is he saying, they didn't actually ascend, I'm ascending? No. When Jesus is saying no one has ascended, he is not talking about being taken to heaven. He's talking about the position he's going to be given in heaven. We're going to unpack this. Remember, the ascension is a physical act where Christ was taken to heaven on a cloud of glory. To ascend means simply to go up. Uh, People of the Old Testament ascended to heaven, Enoch, Elijah, and there's actually multiple other saints that were told were taken to the bosom of Abraham or the gates of heaven. Um, even pilgrims, when they were taking their trip to Jerusalem, would say, We are ascending to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is not using the word ascend in its common vernacular, he is using it to mean something extremely specific. He is saying that his ascension is not just him leaving but it's also the process of ascending it back to his full divine being and taking his place as king of kings. This does not mean that Christ was not king while he was here on earth. And last week, Jordan was going to use the Lord of the Rings as an example, but he spared all of you from another Lord of the Rings analogy. I do not have that same grace. In the Lord of the Rings, there is a character named Aragorn, He is a self-exiled king of Gondor, which is like the capital city of mankind. And throughout the books and the movies, it's it's just told over and over that he's the true king, he's the true king, he's the true king. And as people start to see him and realize who he is, they pledge allegiance to him, they follow him. um, And at one point, he has to go get an army of ghosts, which is a really weird sentence to say. But the only reason they follow him is because of his kingship, because of who he is. Though he is not on a throne... He is still king. In the same way, though Christ is not on the throne in heaven, he is still the king. He was never not the king. In the beginning of the book of Luke, um, the author writes that Jesus descended from heaven. As our Lord comes to us as a baby in a manger, it is a physical coming, but not just a physical descension. In his descension, he removes himself from his divine position to humble himself to the will of the Father. And don't hear me wrong. He's still God, he's still man, he's still king. But Christ willingly took himself from his position in heaven and became part of creation so that he may save creation. Since Christ descended in a form of submission to the Father, that his ascension would be a similar happening. Having conquered sin and death, Christ ascends to take his place at the right hand of God. He didn't just go to heaven, he was brought to a place higher than any other. Christ says in Matthew... In his last statement to the disciples at the end of the Great Commission, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has given Jesus the name above all names, one to which every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is king. Jesus' ascension is a triumphant return to heaven. Having conquered death in the grave, it is a coronation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has ascended to the highest position of power to which no one can match. Jesus says it's for our benefit that he leaves. And I don't think the Western church has ever believed that for a second. We romanticize the days of miracles, walking on water, and sermons on mountainsides. And we say it couldn't possibly have been better, but it is better. There are essentially three reasons why Christ had to leave and why he couldn't just reign forever on earth. The first is... It was not god's plan simple as that the second is he had to take his place in heaven for our sakes and the third is so the holy spirit may come so we ask if christ is in heaven at the right hand of the father what is he doing and where is he now being seated at the right hand of god is the highest position of favor with god the father this term is used over and over in the new testament to give christ his sovereignty and his power um john calvin would say that Christ was invested with lordship over heaven and earth and solemnly entered his position of government committed to him and that he not only entered into position once for all, but continues in it until he shall come down on judgment day. Now, we as a nation um, are quickly approaching another election year. And no matter where you sit politically, um, I think there's some uneasiness about it, right? There was some uneasiness last time, some uneasiness time before that. Um, There's uneasiness of what's going to happen to our country and our lives. Let me tell you, friends, no matter who is elected, they cannot unseat the king of kings and lord of lords. Our God omnipotent reigns, and within Jesus' ascension, he is crowned king of kings, not just the best king, not just another lord, but king above all others and lord above all else. No matter who is in charge of the finite speck of rock that we call home He is seated above them and his will will be done The phrase lord of lords a title frequently used in the new testament to describe jesus um, Is a is a very interesting one because one of the titles in the old testament for god is yahweh elohim um, Which is a compound of two different words yahweh being the personal name for god elohim essentially meaning lord over When we translate things over and over and over and over and over, we kind of lose their meaning. And uh, luckily, with the New Testament, there's this thing called the Septuagint, which is like a Greek version of the Old Testament, that gives us the meaning of Yahweh Elohim. It doesn't mean personal God over lords. It means God over the universe. And it is synonymous or interchangeable with the phrase Lord of lords. So when we say Christ is the Lord of Lords, we say he is Yahweh Elohim. He is the God over all things. Our hope, despite a political climate, is that the Lord of the universe, Yahweh Elohim, is sovereign over the situation and the control of all things. Now that Christ is seated in this position of power, he is doing two things consistently. He's making intercession for us, and he is operating as the perfect and final high priest. Jesus is appointed our high priest, Which is a cool thing to say, but what does that mean? Uh, For centuries, there had to be a high priest. It started with Aaron in the wilderness, and it ended in 70 AD when the temple was burned to the ground. Meaning there could be no more sacrifice for sin, because there was no more altar to sacrifice on. What did the high priest do? He would go into this place called the Holy of Holies, which is the most inner point of the temple or the tabernacle. Um, It's where God's glory dwelt, where that Shekinah glory dwelled. And the priest would offer sacrifice for the sins of the people to God on the altar there. We hear this a lot, but what does it really mean, right? So sin separated man from God. And God, in the Garden of Eden, killed an animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. With this action, God would look upon the animal and not on Adam and Eve's wickedness. So from there on out, the high priests would take a sacrifice and put it before God and say, Look, our sin is dealt with. Look upon the animal, not us. They would cast the sins of the nation onto a lamb, and they would say the lamb has suffered the death related to sin on our behalf. Since the sacrificial system is over, we can't be saved through sacrifice. But because the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, shed His blood, so we may be forgiven. Jesus now stands before the Father on our behalf as both our priest and our perfect sacrifice. He says, look at me. My scars, the holes in my hands and the feet, their sin was cast upon me and not onto them. Despite our depravity, despite our mistakes, despite the filth we subject ourselves to, Christ still stands before the Father and intercedes on our behalf as our high priest. And church, if you are dealing with something And saying, God can't forgive me or I have sinned too hard. Know in insurance that Christ stands before the Father, interceding on your behalf. He's both the Lamb slain for our sins and the high priest who intercedes for the people. And he will do this until he returns. It says at the end of that verse in Luke that the disciples worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They understood that Jesus was going to his coronation as king, to be our high priest, and to be our perfect sacrifice before the Lord. We are told in Acts chapter 1 that he will descend in the same way he ascended. His first coming was as a babe, a sheep led to the slaughter, a silent savior and a manger. His second coming will be on a cloud of glory, a warrior king coming for his people, at first a lamb and now a lion. The disciples understood this, and that's why they worshipped God. That's why they went to the temple and they worshipped Endlessly even though this uh, event wouldn't be in their lifetime. And if I was to get into the theology of Christ's return, we'd be here for hours. Uh, So all I'm going to say is that God is on the throne, Christ is coming back, and live in light of his return. That's the easiest way to explain the end times. We do not fear the end. We await it longingly. We know the outcome, we know what's to come. We know the King of glory will return. In the, the history of redemption throughout the Old Testament, And in the New Testament, we are giving a very interesting theme. Every time the Lord does a major act of redemption, the people make a new song. And it typically says, and they sung a new song. Uh, We have the song of Moses, the song of Deborah, Mary's song or the Magnifica, which the pastor preached on. um, And the song of Solomon. Uh, Solomon, Simon, not the song of Solomon. (laughs) That is not about redemption. Um, The song of Simeon. But now we have a new song that we can join in, the song of the saints, which we are told in Revelation, when the lamb that was slain enters the throne of heaven, the saints sing to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And that's our song that we get to sing with him. In the ascension, Jesus came home and the saints uttered a new song, just as the disciples did in the temple. Luke gives us a perspective of the ascension of Christ from earth, and John will give us perspective of the homecoming of Christ in Revelation, where Christ is worshipped with a new song. In the Gospel of Matthew, the last words of Jesus while he is giving his commission are, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The Bible is full of promises. I think this is the greatest one. Or at least one of the greatest. Maybe not the greatest one. Because I can say I'm struggling right now but Christ would say, I'm with you always until the end of the age. I could say, I feel so alone. And Christ would say, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Well, the weight of the world is crushing me, and I don't know what to do. I'm with you always until the end of the age. I can't handle it anymore, and I want to die. I'm with you always until the end of the age. Despite our situation, despite our sin, despite what's going on in the world, Christ is with us always until the end He comes back until the end of the age. No matter what we face, Christ is with us until his return. In closing, his ascension into heaven to the King of Kings and to our high priest, he is coming back to rule the earth in perfection. Until then, he is with us always until the end of this current age. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your sacrifice and for your atoning work on the cross. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the ascension of our Lord to a place of our high priest where he makes sufficient sacrifice for us before you, and you no longer look on our sin, but you look on him instead. We praise you, God, for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon at Restoration Road. We hope it blessed you and invite you to join us for next service at 10 a.m. on Sunday. God bless.